Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. After four years of renovations, the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History will reopen early next year. The new Peabody hopes to be a more community-centered space in New Haven, weaving in local voices and contemporary ties throughout the museum. One of those voices may be familiar, Muhammad Fafez, a Syrian-born New Haven-based artist and architect. He's been on the program before to discuss his acclaimed artwork, Unpacked, Refugee Baggage, a series seeking to humanize the word refugee. He also came in to talk about his Westfield Cafe, Pistachio. Since then, he's opened a second location of his Pistachio Cafe in downtown New Haven and, no big deal, got married and had a baby. We'll touch on all of that this hour, but we'll also be getting a sneak preview of his collaboration with the Peabody. His new piece is Eternal Cities, and it was just installed alongside the museum's Babylonian collection. We're able to photograph the 10-foot sculpture during the process. You can check out those images on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. 3D prints of ancient Babylonian artifacts are peppered throughout the artwork, bridging the millennia between ancient Mesopotamia and Syria. And joining us now to discuss this new piece is the artist and architect himself, Mohammed Hafez. Welcome back to Where We Live. It is so good to be back with you. Thank you so much. Well, we're so happy that you're happy to be back. And for our listeners, just a quick note that you can also join the conversation. Leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Mohammed, there has been so many things happening this year for you, and we'll focus on this project first, though. So can you take us back to sort of the early days of, of planning stages for Eternal Cities? Well, you know, this is an idea that started... Um, I would say during a fellowship I've done with the University of Chicago and working with the um, Oriental Institute, I realized, you know, I'm surrounded by institutions like the OI and the Peabody um, that have a huge arsenal of archaeological objects from our region. Um, and And I didn't, you know, fully take in the magnitude of it until I actually walked during, uh, through uh, one of the archives in, in Chicago. Um, and I realized I could handle these objects. I can look at them and study them. And then the miniature artist inside me started envisioning a new use for these objects. Um, and then there was a, an aha moment um, that sort of connected a need between the museums and a need between the artists um, that are living abroad that are wanting to give back in an educational capacity. Um, so in that sense, you know, COVID happened very quickly. That project died in Chicago, came back um, to New Haven, minding my business, uh, as you said, um, you know, by the way, with a kid and a, and a wife later. Um, and, and then we got connected with the Peabody. 
uh, where, you know, I was also astonished by how beautiful and grand their uh, library of objects was. So we started talking and then, you know, uh, we took it from there. But that's in a nutshell. Um, I can speak more to, to the details um, in a bit, but really at the crux of the project, it's a collaboration between educational archaeological museums and local artists that come from the region um, that are working and living in the diaspora. Um, and, and really, it's at the crux of it, it's, 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 um, it solves a, a problem of um, engaging uh, people in a very short attention span times, uh, getting more interest built into these objects beyond just um, looking at them in a glass vitrine. Um, and then it, it, it gives back um, to the artist himself or herself to, to be able to give back um, to their own communities and culture and society they hail from in an educational giving uh, gift that hopefully would, would outlive all of us. Well, I, I love a good aha moments, you know, as, as you're getting married and have a baby. That's just so many moments, I think, at once for you, Mohammed. Um, <laughs> but as you're, as you're describing that, you know, I'm wondering, what were some of the earliest inklings that you had in mind for this piece after your aha moment? Or what were some of your priorities that you knew in the moment that you wanted to express? So as you alluded in, in your introduction, I've been working with... Um, refugees quite a bit in, in the past few years. And what I realized is a lot of these families are struggling um, with, with something missing with their children. Uh, primarily, we have a whole generation that was born and raised outside the Middle East, knowing very little, um, and whatever they know uh, has to do with war, blood, destruction, unfortunately. So my struggle as a Syrian-American artist uh, that is infatuated by the richness of our um, heritage and culture and, and society um, to the point that I, you know, I make art as a full time about that. I quit my architecture job. Um, how do I translate that love? How do I teach somebody that you hail from a very, very unique, rich area of the world that connects so many societies? just by roots alone. So there was always this struggle inside me to have an educational component that first and foremost engages a younger generation in, in wanting to learn um, and wanting to, to just um, explore what it, what it means to be from Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and so on and so forth. Um, and the museums sort of, you know, struggle with that um, as well, because how many objects are you going to look at in a glass vitrine before you move on, before you get bored, before you just, you know, okay, another object. Here, two seconds here, two seconds here, moving on, let's go, when is lunch, right? So it, it, it really is um, the aha moment came in, well, what if we use the technology today and reproduce these objects in 3D printed, uh, replicas and the technology today allows us to do exactly that 
you could not tell the difference between the real object and its replica today. And what it used to be a bowl from Babel, what it used to be a horn, a furniture leg, now in this installation is a dome of a church, is a minaret of a mosque, is a column carrying a part of a building, right? So there is this, all of a sudden, this finder's game, and you go from two seconds per objects, per, you know, glass, vitrine, to all of a sudden you have viewers engaging this piece for five, 10, even 15 minutes. Well, and I, I really love this sort of juxtaposition with 3D technology as well as archaeology because it's not really something that you would put together. And my mind is trying to grapple with that. And I just love this idea that you can create this piece of art with 3D printing. So we'd love to you know pick your brain about what was the process like of experimentation with 3D printing and where, when did the idea of this finder's game come about as you're sort of processing that? You know, uh, the, the Peabody team and um, Kaylin and Aunette, they, they were very, very generous um, in opening their archives. Um, you know, they took all the precautions necessary. But at the end of the day, I was able to interact uh, with no barrier with these objects to examine them, literally opening uh, drawers, looking at thousands and thousands of years of history. So I was back to the child in me um, that played with Legos, as, as simple as that sounds. My favorite uh, game ever, you know, uh, surprise. Well, um, and as a found object artist, my eye is always used to looking for, uh, 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 to study the shapes uh, in a visual conversation that's really irrelevant of their original use as objects. Um, and what happened is, you know, I was like a little kid in a candy shop opening these drawers and saying, okay, let's pick this, that, oh my God, this is a dome here. Oh my God, this is gonna be a great lantern and so on and so forth. Um, you know, team probably thought it was a bit cuckoo, but- <laughs> We love a little uh, bit of that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we, I think we selected anywhere from 60 to 90 objects. Um, there was um, a trial period where we, did, where we um, you know, um, the, the, the museum, uh, printed uh, them and uh, first of all scanned them in high resolution so that you have every little bump in the actual objects translated in the print and I don't know if you know this the, the, the technology of 3d printing has evolved so much in the recent times um, where now the the actual object really looks um, equal to the uh, to the print. Um, there's no differences, there are no streaks, there are no printing marks, and so on and so forth. Um, and just having that ability to replicate these beautiful objects um, opened a, a huge uh, library of possibilities. You're talking about taking an object that's also maybe three feet wide, but it's so gorgeous. But now with the technology that we have, we can scale it down and make it 10 inches tall, right? And print it that way. 
And, you know, just imagine telling a child, do you see that little column in that part? Well, look over. Uh, there's a vitrine two doors down where you're going to see the real object and learn about it. And, 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 and I'll let the ladies discuss, you know, the beauty of um, what they've done in the exhibit, how they married the actual objects um, with the piece uh, in, in showcases that are literally right next to the artwork. Right. I would be amazed if you can tell a difference. And, and coming up, we will be hearing from Alnita Lassen, who's the associate curator of the Yale Babylonian collection that you're describing, uh, that you've gone through. And we do have images of you actually looking through that collection and images of the sculpture itself, Eternal Cities, on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. So I do want to go back to talk about the game in a little bit, but can you tell us what about what it was like to sort of choose which artifacts to include in the piece. You know, what was going through your mind when you're looking through the collection? You're like, ah, that's the one. You, you know, uh, anybody that's familiar with my artwork, um, it's very architectural. It's very miniature. Um, um, a lot of facades, a lot of, um, you know, archite architectural components that um, are overlapping each other, very similar to what you see in Damascus, Aleppo, Rome, uh, Egypt. The, uh, you know, these old cities have multiple layers and layers and layers of architecture that tells the story of their inhabitants that have come and gone. And so architecture now has, and through my artwork, has an ability to tell the narratives and the stories of these multi-generations that have come and gone and it's a way to tell somebody whoever lived here is 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 not two or ten years old this is a civilization that is thousands of years old and the deeper you dig you know the more you excavate and so on so i was looking for objects that would tell such stories would help me tell such stories um, we have used cylinder uh, rolls, um, cylinder seals that we rolled into clay. Um, and I think Alneta would be um, the perfect person to tell you about uh, the, the uh, use of these uh, cylinder seals. But basically, if you roll them on, on out of clay, you get this um, uh, sort of um, relief created that also tells a story um, of, of, you know, the use or, or the owner um, of the seal and so forth, and so on and so forth. Uh, we've used bowls, we've used um, tablets that have uh, recipes, they have uh, stories on them, messages. And so I tried picking very visual, visually rich objects that eventually makes somebody very, very curious of what is that? I want to learn more about it. So I stayed away from just a simple shape, a simple um, circle or, or arch or so on and so forth. Um, we've, you know, there's, I remember this uh, chair um, leg that looked like an animal hoof. Um, 
and I was so mesmerized by it. Um, and I think it was bronze or, or some sort of a metal originally um, that I turned it into a column inside the church that is carrying the whatever is left of of, um, of that church. And, and we'll we'll talk about the, the the bit of erosion and destruction in the piece uh, a bit later as well. Well, and I I love that we're talking about history and and culture and and you mentioned you know, a lot of children may not know a lot of their history beyond beyond the bloodshed or beyond violence which is as we know very sad and unfortunate so like i i love this sort of transition would you say for for visitors to be able to be a part of this piece of art and the exhibits as a conversation you know, with the artists, you know, with the objects and, and back to the, the Lego slash finders game that you mentioned earlier, you know, so what does that signify to you? You know, what does the game signify to you? Is it is this a way for museums to demonstrate how visitors and museums and artists can talk to one another in a more deep and meaningful way? It, it really is. I think, you know, I'll, I'll speak about myself. I am super, super, super excited about doing work like this. Um, it has a purpose, it has a giving back component, it has an educational component. Um, and we all know we're living into, in, a, in a world where our kids, our students, our, our, our learners, no, no matter what age, um, very short span, very instantaneous, um, you know, kind of swipe through to the other post very fast. Uh, there is no engagement. Uh, we as a human species in general now, um we don't engage with, with these objects the way we used to um and and artists have an ability to just cause somebody to pause right of of pausing and just dive into these scenes this technique helped me a lot in raising awareness about the refugee crisis a few years ago through the miniatures out of the suitcases and no matter how busy somebody they 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 put down their phone and they just really honed in and started learning about these families to the point that, you know, people would walk out crying um, from from the exhibits, even with um, anti-Muslim, anti-refugee slogans printed on their T-shirts, walking into my exhibits, and here and I and I go, here comes trouble, and and at the very end of the exhibit, I remember this very vividly: those three girls coming in with these T-shirts. They just, they, they had teary eyes. They had a beautiful smile. They didn't engage with me in conversation, but they turned and they put their hands on their hearts and they said, thank you. Wow. And they walked, and, you know, and, 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 and that alone, I remember that has changed my perspective. It, it made me believe in art so much, so much that I was willing to throw away all the, my, my artificial career because all of us living in the diaspora, witnessing what we're witnessing and the loss of heritage and a loss of culture and the need uh, to educate and pass on the baton to the generations, know the importance of doing such work, not only from um, an activism standpoint, but also from just continuation and, and of, of our culture and society and knowledge. Um, and in that sense, this collaboration becomes such a fundamental win-win situation for the institutions that have now discovered a way to 
um, explore and feature their um, arsenal of beautiful objects in, in an orthodox way. Um, and the local Middle Eastern or, or, or whatever, what have you, artists that are also re-examining these objects and reintroducing them uh, in a, also an orthodox way. And, and no matter how you look at this collaboration, and I hope to God that we see a lot more and more collaborations like this from all over the world to engage so many artists and open up these uh, archives to them. Um, and just imagine all the good that will come out of it. Um, you're talking about touching hearts from a seven-year-old to an 85, 95-year-old. Everybody sees something in this kind of work and it's, and it's so mesmerizing. And it always, until now, 23 years into this, catches me by surprise every single time. Well, I'm glad that there is still surprise. Like I love, I love that because it keeps it keeps things so so new and fresh for you as the artist, and especially with what you just shared. You know, the reaction from from the girls and and how somebody who's seven to seventy five can have very different reactions. And and related to that, you know, I've got one more question for you before we take a quick break and and hear from some of the curators that you work with. We also have images of you walking through the piece with your family, which includes your very small son right now. Do you have a special message in there for him, Mohammed? Especially, you know, after all of your experiences and all the stories that you shared. You know, it it, it hits home. He's he's, you know, he's he's one of these kids that I, I hope he grows up proud um, of his roots, proud of who we are. Um, no matter how much prejudice out there, how much xenophobia, how much I hope that's all gone by the time he's five, six years old. It's hard to believe. Um, my experience tells me this, you know, a bit of an ugly world has been created and it's here to stay. Um, and I just want to send him a message that, you know, you are not uh, insignificant. You and, and, and your community and your nation and your roots um, are not insignificant. Um, read history, read, um, learn um, about our roots, my son, and you will see that we have invented a lot of amazing things in the world um, that you will see that where we come from is such a rich uh, area in the world that um, sprung many, many uh, civilizations from it is the heart of, of of this modern world that we see all of it came out of that region so the fact that you know our people or the region is being painted and and this dispensable um we don't care about these uh, people or they're not that important um how do you navigate? How do you plant the love of the land and the culture uh, in, in our children's heart, our children that never stepped a foot in our region? So I'm hoping by doing such work, and, and you know, I was uh, very, you know, honored and touched uh, that Kalen has uh, allowed me to graffiti his name on uh, on a column inside the piece so that one day, you know, I can carry him and we can visit and say, look, daddy, 
I graffitied your name and hopefully he would get a, a kick out of it and uh, be proud of it and, and be proud of his father's work and, and, and try and work hard to learn more about what his father was trying to talk about. Well, I'm getting a kick out of it, so I'm sure he would too. Uh, you've been listening to New Haven artist and architect Mohammed Hafez. After a quick break, we'll hear more about some of these artifacts, and you can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're taking a sneak preview of the new Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. The museum is set to reopen early next year, taking a more dynamic approach to community engagement and curatorial voice, involving local leaders to help bring history to life. And one of those local uh, leaders is with us this morning, artist and architect Mohamed Hafez. And joining us now to dig deeper into this piece and where it fits into the museum's renewed mission is Kaylin Rogers. She's Associate Director of Exhibitions at Yale Peabody Museum. Thank you so much, Kaylin, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And also with us is Anita Lawson. She's the Associate Curator of the Yale Babylonian Collection. Anita, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. And for our listeners, you can always join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Kaylin, I want to start with you. You've been listening along to Mohammed this hour. Would love to get your thoughts about how this project got started and and how his piece is representative of the museum's updated approach to curation. Absolutely, it's been a pleasure to hear Mohammed speak about this piece because for the last couple of years we've been often mired in details. So it's really nice to step back and and talk about the bigger picture again. Um, we started this project in the spring of 2021, and it was actually through another community connection, um, Samaya Khan, who was the program director at Sanctuary Kitchen here in New Haven, was chatting with us about another project. And then she said, hey, do you know Mohammed Hafez? And we didn't. And she arranged an introduction and kicked things off for us. And we definitely want to talk more about community involvement in a little bit. But Anita, this collection is super close to your heart. You know, what was it like to actually see it come to life in this way? So Mohammed sees these objects in uh, from a different perspective than what I'm used to. So he will see their shapes. 
and he will see them as you know parts of a of an architecture and not he doesn't see them as archaeological pieces or historical documents and so it was really stimulating and um a, a very exciting for me to view them through his eyes as small pieces of architecture or art that could be recontextualized into his artwork. And Anita, you know, one of the objects on display um, is Muhammad's, uh, for Muhammad's piece is a poem. Can you tell us about this poem and talk about why is it significant? So I was really pleased that Muhammad chose um, this tablet in particular uh, because it's one that we put on display in the gallery. And I'm really, really excited that we can put it on display here um, at the Yale Peabody Museum. Um, it was composed by a woman who was, in fact, the first named author in world literature. Um, and when we think about Mesopotamian literature, we usually think about Gilgamesh and other pieces. Um, and not this piece composed by by Enheduanna. And so it was, I was really pleased that uh, he chose to include her work into his um, his installation. And Muhammad would love to know, what was your favorite artifact in the piece that listeners can look out for? I know you mentioned the stamp seals earlier. Anything else? Or if you want to expound on that more? Oh, where, where do you start? Um... <laughs> from the beginning <laughs> or from the middle? <laughs> Um, I think one of my most favorite ones was, um, I think it used to be a a wig uh, piece that went on top of a a sculpture head originally. And Aunita can talk about the the actual historical, archaeological uh, um, purpose for it, but it, it looked like a basin to me. And um, more so like a toilet. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was, tr- you know, I, I I kept seeing and seeing a toilet in it. And Anita also, uh, you know, laughed at this. Um, but I, I pulled back and I held myself back and I ended up using it as a basin. So I, we flipped it upside down uh, and used it as a basin. And we have uh, resin into it so when you look at it it looks like it has running water and there's a spigot on top of it and just the amount of detail on that thing is is really mesmerizing um and this is where you know the nerd in me gets a kick out of these things because if you look at it in the scene that i've built around it it it, it belongs and it looks like it has it, this is her, its purpose this is why it's used to be uh, and this is you know, it's always been there. Everybody that looks at this new artwork would think, oh, my God, this scene must have been hundreds of years old. Well, little they know, this is a 3D printed piece that just got put together in a <laughs> few months. And it's upside down, actually. And you can look at the actual piece uh, two meters down uh, the hallway. So, you know, I this is one example Um but I've had multiple, multiple, multiple objects. Um, remember, I was building the architectural scene, simultaneously going back and forth with my Lego parts and, and seeing where do they fit. And, and it's important to, to talk about this because the whole piece is built with a lot of intuition, with a lot of instantaneous decisions. And, and that is very purposeful. 
I don't, I don't plan, I don't draw these things before I build them. I just go. Because what I'm trying to force myself is to mimic what has happened over centuries in these cities, thousands of years. You know, this neighbor builds something, and then 20, 50 years later, that neighbor is reacting to whatever that guy built. And then the city comes and does their own thing. And then the future neighbor, hundreds of years, <laughs> does a bridge. And so the, the whole collective um, collectiveness, the visual collectiveness of our cityscapes are very rich and multi-layered. But they're not your clean development layout. Um, and, and that is important to tell and to teach about is because you tell, I, want, I want to tell my son, son, we're not 100 years old. We're not 500 years old. There are doorknobs in Damascus that are older than some countries in this world. Well, I think that's the beauty of art, right? You can interpret it how you will. And you mentioned a nerd in you, but a nerd in me immediately pictured a chamber pot when you mentioned basin slash toilet. So <laughs> I think we're on the same same wavelength there. Uh, Alnita, we'd love for you to set us straight if you can tell us more about this specific artifact. Now, what's the history behind it? So this used to be the very um, elaborate hairdo of a divine statue that would have been made of many different materials. So metal, maybe organic materials and stone would have gone into um, this um, statuette or figurine. It's now lost and all we have left is this um, hairdo. Um, it has sort of wavy uh, bangs and a beautiful xingyong in the back and uh, a band uh, that sort of runs around the the, the head of the, um, um, of the hairdo. Um, but it definitely was never used as a uh, <laughs> as a toilet or a, a basin of, of any kind. Most likely, it stood uh, in a temple um, in um, southern Iraq several thousand years ago. Well, we appreciate the clarification, uh, Alnita. Can you also touch on the importance of sort of centering voices from Syria or the Middle East, and of course, sort of ensuring those links to Mesopotamia are there for the people? I mean, we've been talking a lot about the importance of history and culture, but anything specific about, yes. you know, specifically Syria or the Middle East? So it was very important for us from the beginning that the development of this gallery should be in conversation with Middle Eastern voices. And so Mohammed uh, was an, an obvious choice for us to to have in, in conversation, but also Sanctuary Kitchen and other Middle Eastern um, communities um, locally uh, in New Haven in the development of, of the gallery. Um, it We wanted it to feel like a welcoming space where people could take ownership of what was in there. Like Muhammad, I really am uh, fully behind this idea that uh, there should be somewhere where people can come and appreciate uh, their roots or their, their history of their community. Um, and we wanted that reflected um, in the development of the gallery and, and its final result. And Muhammad, I know you mentioned this a little bit earlier about the importance for especially children who has lived outside of the Middle East to have a connection to their history. So I want to pose this question to you, too. You know, what's your what are your thoughts about the importance of centering voices from Syria or the Middle East and, and making sure that links to Mesopotamia are there for people? I, I think it, it is so important. Um, what is 50, 60 years in the in the in retrospect uh, to the age of societies and civilizations? It's nothing. 
and, and it's so important to paint that bigger picture in my mind. You, you know, the 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 you have to see where why am I on the defense and what am I defending against? You have to see the status quo of of the bullying that happens, the uh, smearing, the um, wiping of of culture, um, erasing um, of of our history. You know, in the Syrian War, we have lost so many archaeological sites, so many uh, architectural gems. I, I, I quote here one: the minaret, the Aleppan minaret in the Umayyad Mosque that's eleven hundred years old. So. You know, if you say it that way, maybe few people would pay attention. But when you say, hey, do you remember when Notre Dame burned up? Um, how painful was that? Well, we share the same pain by seeing our civilization and our culture being not only burnt up, being bombed out of existence for so many years. Um, obviously, the, the human life is 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 the most price we pay but there is something worth of weeping and that's where the artists and the architects come in i weep over this loss of culture and heritage and to me highlighting the richness of syria uh, mesopotamia iraq it takes me back few clicks further than our modern history <laughs> you know I am interested in how did that region used to be a couple of clicks back. Let's, let's wind that 100, 200, 300 years old. What kind of coexistence happened there? What kind of diversity happened in that region? How many people lived side by side, really, and, and, and flourishing and building these civilizations? And when you realize that, when you realize that this was a very rich multi diverse, so many religions living side by side for so long, building this beautiful civilization, you, you realize that, oh, hold on, <laughs> what are we fighting over? And, and why do we not work together to, to coexist and, 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 and have a common denominator and, and raise uh, and support the values that humans all uh, should support? And so the soft tools that are in my hands as an artist is, is, are these tools. Obviously, the conversation is much bigger, and I hope the activism component brings people together by using a common denominator, a common love and care for culture, archaeology, and history. But at the end of the day, the artist inside me wants humans to see each other eye to an eye respect each other uh, from one to another and work together to, to preserve and build a society, to build a life on this earth, not demolish it. And Kaylin, as we continue to sort of highlight the richness of history, like Mohammed was saying, and also, you know, study the civilization, both past and present, you know, community involvement in present day is a huge piece uh, of this process. And you mentioned earlier your collaboration with Sanctuary Kitchen, which is a nonprofit partnering with immigrant chefs out of New Haven helped lead to this collaboration. So what else can we see, you know, where it concerns celebrating modern day Mesopotamia or related works that will help sort of 
continue to enrich this conversation or to educate your visitors? Yes, absolutely. So we are excited um, once we open our doors again to visitors after all this time to be able to have a really robust um, series of programs around the galleries. And we're looking forward um, to working with Mohammed and some of our other partners on bringing these pieces to life in the space for our visitors. When you're mentioning uh, Mohammed's piece, you know, we'd love to also ask if um, I want to talk about his piece as a representative for the museum's updated approach to curation. You know, is is this going to be part of a new process that you're continuing? You know, he's kind of kicking off this experience or, you know, what what can we expect in the future? Absolutely. So when we reopen, there are community voices in all of our galleries, um, which we're really excited about. Certainly, Mohammed's sculpture is um, our signature collaboration. It is very hard to miss in the best way. And I look forward to it surprising and engaging people. Um, but as we move forward, we are bringing in voices in a number of ways in terms of maybe there is a Yale student who has written um, a series of labels about fossil bugs from Wyoming or um, other community members who are curating cases about um, a, a, a range of subjects um, throughout our fossil galleries, our human culture galleries, and our life sciences galleries. So there's a lot for people to uh, to see and be surprised by. Kaylin Rogers with the Peabody Museum, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. And Anita Lawson, thank you as well. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Haven artist and architect Mohammed Hafez. More with Hafez after a quick break. You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us to zoom out on the momentous ear since he's been on this program is artist and architect Mohammed Hafez. And just a quick note for our listeners that you can also join the conversation. Leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Mohammed, we've been having such a great conversation about your current piece with the Peabody Museum. It's really hard to imagine that Eternal Cities is being put together as you've had a baby and opened a new pistachio cafe. Can you talk about what a whirlwind this has been for you, Mohammed? <laughs> uh, I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's so <laughs> fine to me. <laughs> we'll just leave it at your laugh. That's that, I think that's the perfect answer to that question. <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, how are the two pistach uh, pistachios cafes going? You know, what has the response been like to both of them? The, the response has been great. We're, we're truly blessed. Um, I, I think... You know, we underestimate what um, people um, appreciate just subconsciously. Um, you know, I, I tend to have this thing about um, unconventionally approaching any project. And we did that in Pistachio as well. We, we, we built two restaurants that, you know, you look like you're walking into my mom's or my grandma's salon, you know, it, there's no restauranteur that's going to spend what I spent in decorating that place. But that's that's not what I care. I, I wanted to welcome people to have such a, to share the Arab 
hospitality uh, and the generosity with a larger group of people. And so, you know, you do this uh, work and you walk away and you see what happens and you're always um, uh, pleasantly surprised um, uh, and fulfilled when you see how people receive this kind of warmth. You don't need to be knowledgeable of the Middle East to, to pick on how warm and open and hospitable uh, these spaces are. And, and, you know, the world doesn't know, you know, now they know because you mentioned I own them, but <laughs> I try to stay in the backdrop. I try to stay behind the scenes. I walk in with my contractor clothes because I'm doing 10 million other projects and people, you know, don't look at split second at me and I just eavesdrop and, and I see how people are enjoying their time and, you know, uh, check on them and so on and so forth. So what in a nutshell, you know, the architect inside me was in hunger to build uh, bridges of understanding and, and hospitality and so on and introduce the Middle East to a wider um, audience but at the one-to-one scale, the architectural scale that I am uh, trained to do. So pistachio really checks the box um, in me uh, doing the artwork that I do at an architectural scale. That's that's really at the, in a nutshell what these places or what these cultural salons are really are. Well, I was gonna say maybe more of a pistachio shell, if you will. exactly well played well played well and you mentioned the 10 million things that you're doing so normally we'd ask what's next and i'm assuming you have a what what's next but i hope you are getting a little bit of a of a rest and a little downtime mohammed um i i am i am we'll we'll keep it that way um um yeah i i can't i really can't i i have to stay busy i have to be um thinking about um i i can't that 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 duty that i i i i explained to you um i don't know the the i i feel as a as a middle eastern muslim arab creative living in today's america living in today's world we have a guilt feeling we have a huge guilt feeling if we just wake up mind our business, go shopping, go grocery shopping, come home, have dinner, and watch some TV. You know, with everything that's happening in the world, you cannot help but to have this huge guilt feeling because when I sit and open my news feed, and we all know how that's going to look like, you have that survivor guilt feeling of, well, why was I being spared? And and everything now is coming back to life. Again, with what's going on in the Middle East, uh, we went through this uh, viciously in, in the Syrian war, which gave me more push to keep doing anything I, in my capacity. Um, and, and now I feel the back burner is, is, um, is on, <laughs> the, the fire is full blast, and it's, it's go time. It's go time. It's work time. It's building time. Well, you just mentioned, you know, it's go time, it's, it's, it's work time. The back burner is also on along with all the other burners. So I know this, this is a, re- a really big question, 
But you know, you touched on this before. You know, your work is about the kind of universality of the refugee experience, and also the the difficulties and homesickness that you were processing with that. So. You know, especially with what you just shared. You know, in what ways do you think your art speaks to current events, especially in Palestine and in Israel? You know, if 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 people would just pause for a second and realize the commonality and the huge common denominator between people, their love and their relationship to architecture and their home, and the the places they have been raised in and when you humanize through art and when you bring people together just from a humanitarian politics aside from just human to human i i think some of the extreme rhetoric out there would i'm hoping that it would decrease at least just 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 i don't understand how in today's world somebody could say carpet bomb that place wipe them out <laughs> you know politicians famous politicians carpet bomb them finish the job wipe him out as they're as they're not even ants and and so that the artists have the responsibility to say there are civilians lives being lost there are um you know there there is there's a need for humanitarian work, nobody in their straight mind would would support any heinous crime from any party, from any side. Nobody, and and this is where I'm just as a as an artist. I'm not interested one iota in, in politics, but I'm interested in humans. I'm interested in seeing eye to an eye. I'm interested in those moments where, you know. Um, Jewish families of, of, of immigrant origin in America gave me their mother's suitcases and their grandparents' suitcases in 2017. And they said, here's the belongings of yesterday immigrants. Help tell the story of today's immigrants being the Syrian refugees. I am interested in, in that kind of work between humans. I'm interested in utilizing my artwork in more moments of this where I bring, bring people together and I teach and I say, listen, I, I talk to the world that history repeats itself and it's not, we're not talking about a thousand years old. We're talking about a couple clicks back. Please, please, let's not repeat the same genocidal, the same heinous crimes that have, have been committed a couple clicks back into a new uh, society. You know, and, and that's where art helps see an eye to an eye. I don't want to speak. I want my art to speak. I want my art to build these humanitarian bridges and, 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 and bring peace uh, between people, really. Well, I am certainly going to be looking at art a little bit differently now and hopefully be able to engage with it more, especially after this conversation. Mohamed Hafez, thank you so, so much for your time today. It is always a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.